And uh, hopefully this microphone will work the way it's the way I have it here. If it rubs on my shirt, then it creates all kinds of uh, background noise. But I think I've got it here where it won't do that. And by next week, I'll have a clip for it. So we'll have, it, have that problem resolved. Uh, but the last time we were together, which was three weeks ago today, we were uh, we covered about the first half or so of Genesis chapter 38. And so you're going to have to really put your thinking caps on here. I know most of you guys have amnesia or or Alzheimer's or something. So when I ask you to remember something from three weeks ago, I'm, I'm kind of overloading the system. But uh, but uh, let's go back and kind of look at that passage and kind of try to review and remember some of the things we talked about. In fact, uh, to facilitate that, why don't we just read the chapter? And we'll read the whole chapter because I hope to finish uh, the last uh, uh, ten verses or so that we still have yet to read. I hope to do that today. So let's just read beginning in verse 1 and just try to remember the things that we talked about three weeks ago. And we'll review that and then we'll go on and pick up the story with at verse 20. So he says, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, Will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, 
and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anam? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she also is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give to her my son she give her to my son Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time that she was giving birth that behold there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Okay. Well, going back, we actually we talked uh, about the first uh, 19 verses or so we covered uh, when we were last together three weeks ago. And uh, so glance down through those verses and see what you can remember. What are some of the things that we talked about when we first looked at this chapter? <laughs> it doesn't get much bleaker than this, does it? This is really bleak, and and this this chapter does not speak real well. At least what we've looked at uh, so far does not really speak real well for Judah, does it? Okay, you want to elaborate on that? Well, just a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, apparently, if she became widowed, it was up to the brothers of the uh, family to uh, continue the line of the deceased brother. Yes. By Yes, yes. And this is what we call the principle of leveret marriage or brother-in-law marriage, okay? So if a, if a man died and he didn't have descendants, he didn't have any children, or particularly if he didn't have any sons, then it was the responsibility of his brothers, and in some cultures the responsibility of the brothers or the father of the deceased husband, to go into uh, to go into his wife to uh, go uh, to take his wife as their wife and to raise up seed to uh, the deceased uh, husband. Okay, so this is a principle of leveret marriage. It was it was 
It was uh, a, a principle or a law that existed across a number of cultures, uh, but it was not merely a cultural thing because when we get into the law of Moses, we see that God specifically institutes this principle of leveret marriage within the Mosaic law. So that aspect of it is really not in any way corrupt or profane or polluted. That's actually the way God it in. And we see that from this passage, we see that Onan's refusal to do that actually incurred the wrath of God. Okay? Why was it so important? Uh, why was this principle of leveret's uh, marriage so important uh, to the widow. Okay, it was imperative that she have male children not only to carry on the the name of her deceased husband, but she needs children to provide for her, to provide security, and to provide provision, give provision for her as she gets older in life. Because without that, she she kind of becomes a non-person within the culture. So within this patriarchal system that we've talked about so much as we've gone through Genesis, uh, this principle of leveret marriage is really very important, which is why uh, God uh, institutes it himself uh, even within the law. What else? Well, I thought what was interesting was that he shook his financial duty too because he's been a bachelor father's house. Okay. Which really was shame for her. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's one of the things that stands out in this passage is is uh, is the picture we get of Judah's deteriorating spiritual condition. Uh, that we start the passage, and remember, Judah was kind of a lead voice in selling Joseph into slavery, uh, which happened at the end of the previous chapter. So, so Judah, was, Judah was kind of leading the, leading the brothers in that, in that despicable act of selling their brother into slavery. Now, now we get into this chapter and we see that he pulls away from the family. He departs from the family. He leads his brothers and he goes and he, and he begins to live among the Canaanites and he develops this really close friendship that, as we see, endures for many years with this guy, Hira, who's a Canaanite. And he ends up marrying a Canaanite woman and he raises his children and he marries his children off uh, to a Canaanite woman. Or at least he, uh, he, mar- he, he uh, marries off his oldest son to a Canaanite woman. And so we see this progression of more and more intermingling in Judah's life with the Canaanites and this adoption of the Canaanite way of thinking and the Canaanite way of living. So it's really no surprise that his sons end up being really not men of outstanding character because that's the way they've been raised by their father. So we see this deteriorating spiritual condition in Judah. And and the text doesn't tell us this, but... But I tend to, myself, I think that some of what's going on here is that Judah is probably struggling with the sense of guilt that he feels for what he did to, Ju- to Joseph. And, and I think that will all climax in the passage that we're looking at uh, today and in some of the things that Judah does. But, but, so we see this picture of Judah that he's, that, he, that he's really kind of going downhill spiritually. And the question is, Will there be anything or is there anything that can arrest that spiritual decline and turn Judah around? Okay. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, if he doesn't raise up seed as brother, then he gets the bulk of the inheritance. Yeah, so he obviously had very selfish uh, interest there. Yes. 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 Which, of course, is of vital interest to the Lord in in establishing Israel as as the means by which He's going to communicate uh, His love and His concern to the nation. So it, it's all wrapped up in in God's great concern for Israel and for what He wants to do with Israel in the future. The now, oh, go ahead. As you pointed out, that answers the, the why. We knew from the previous chapter how they ended up uh, in Egypt. Yes. This answers the why. Okay. Um, and I hadn't thought about it until you pointed it out, which is your dog, of course. <laughs> that um, if the society of Israel had continued like this, then the whole plan could have easily been polluted. And and instead, they were taken to a country and became slaves and outcasts and spurned. People didn't want to have anything to do with them. Instead of what we see here, blending in, marrying, and all of that. So, yeah. If and I, and I think and again, the, the scriptures don't actually tell us this, but but some commentators read this into it that Judah is simply an example of what's happening with all the brothers, <laughs> with the exception of Joseph. So that. So that Judah really is a picture to us of the great peril that the whole purpose and plan of God is in at this point. Because all the sons of Jacob are now, uh, they, they degenerated into this, into this moral abyss and, and the actual existence of the nation or the people, the children, the sons of Israel as a distinct people, which is so crucial for God accomplishing His purposes of sending a Redeemer and publishing the glad tidings throughout the world, that that whole plan and that whole purpose is in jeopardy. And so, what we see, and, and this is one of the reasons why chapter 38 is in here. We talked about uh, the fact that the story of Joseph has already started. It started in chapter 37 and, and runs through uh, close to the end of the book of Genesis. So, we have this whole story of Joseph, but then we have chapter 38 this story of Judah and Tamar that just seems to be kind of dropped out of the blue right in the middle of the beginning of the Joseph story. And we go, why is this here? Well, one of the reasons it's here is, is to help us understand, as, uh, uh, as we were just uh, talking about just now, to help us understand why it was necessary for the, for the sons of Israel to, to go down into Egypt. And not simply to go down into Egypt, but to go down into Egypt and to become slaves. It was God's way of protecting the nation. It was God's way of protecting His purpose by sending them into exile, if you will, into Egypt and making them slaves who were despised and nobody, no Egyptian would want to marry them because they're just slaves. By doing that, God preserves the sons of Israel as a distinct entity so that then he can bring them out 400 years later and make them into this great nation through which he then uh, displays his glory to the nation. So, so this whole story of Judah and Tamar is very important. It's not just some kind of weird parentheses that's just stuck in the, uh, stuck in the story. Uh, some uh, commentators who have less regard for, for the Scriptures as being the Word of God I think that this was just some some uh, uh, some writer or somebody who just kind of added this story and he wanted to stick this story in and so it really doesn't have uh, any real significance or relevance. But it has great significance 
and it has great relevance to us for some of the reasons we've talked about. Uh, turn with me, uh, before we go on, over to the book of Matthew. Keep your finger in Genesis because we'll be back there. But turn over to Matthew chapter 1, and I want to read uh, just a, a verse to you there. <clears throat> or we can pick it up. Uh, we can read a couple, three verses. Pick it up in verse 1. Gen- uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This, uh, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. So I want you just to notice there that Judah and Tamar and the two sons that we've just read about and we're going to talk about today, these twin sons, are all mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. So this is another significance of the passage in in Genesis uh, 38, is that it it has bearing on the genealogy of the Christ. Okay, and you will notice here that that Christ is descended from Judah through Perez, not through Zerah. Okay, so I just want to point that out to you, and and as we go through our study today, we will hopefully uh, get to that point to understand the significance of that. Uh, Let me just check my notes to make sure I'm where I want to be here. Okay, uh, so we pick up the story in in, uh, chapter or in verse 20 uh, of chapter 38, where Judah has had these... uh, uh, has had relations, sexual relations with this woman whom he thinks to be a prostitute. How did he negotiate? How did, he, how did they arrive at uh, some agreement by which they would engage in this uh, encounter or this experience? Okay, the price was a go. He, she says, uh, and incidentally, I mentioned this uh, three weeks ago. I do not personally, I do not think it was Tamar's intention when she first went out there to encounter uh, Judah. And I mentioned this, as I said, three weeks ago. I don't think it was her intention to play the part of a prostitute. Uh, I think it's just the way things unfolded and she saw her opportunity and so she took it. I think she just went out there to confront her father-in-law because he had not fulfilled his responsibility to her. I think that's what she went out to do. But when he mistakes her for a prostitute, she sees her opportunity and she takes her chance. Now, that's not the text doesn't tell us one way or another, but that's how I read it. But so she says he says he makes a proposition to her and and she says, what are you going to pay me for it? And he offers her uh, a goat. Okay, but he doesn't have a goat. So what do they do? Okay, I need a down payment. I need a collateral. Okay, so he asks. She asks for a pledge. What pledge will you give me? And he offers what? Okay, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, of course, the signet ring. We know what that is. The cord was the cord by which the signet ring was hung around the neck. 
But the staff is particularly significant, okay? Because the staff is not just a hiking stick, okay? Each man, uh, each man would have his own staff, and it would be ornately carved, and it would, and it would be representative of this particular individual. And in the case of Judah, it would be representative uh, of Judah as an individual and of his position and of his place, okay? So in one sense. We understand then the staff is not simply a stick, but is really with somebody who's in a position of authority. The staff is actually his scepter. Okay. Now, when we realize that his staff is his scepter, that the staff is Judah's scepter, what is the significance here? Exactly. In Genesis chapter 49, at the end of the story, uh, Jacob makes the prophecy for concerning his 12 sons. And one of the prophecies that he makes concerning Judah is that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Messiah comes. But that prophecy is given after the scepter has already departed and been returned. Okay, so that's one of the things I want to think about as we go through this chapter today, because what happens here with Judah's scepter or with Judah's staff is really representative of what is at stake in this whole encounter with Tamar and with what Tamar does with the staff. Okay, well, so he determines uh, uh, he's 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 had this uh, these relations with this woman. He's gone his way. He's. He's uh, he's uh, had his pleasure and fulfilled his lusts, and he goes his way now. And it's time for him to reclaim his pledge. So, what does he do? Okay, he sends his friend off with a goat. Okay, now there's several things that are kind of interesting here to me. One is that he sends his friend. Why doesn't he take the goat himself? Actually, I think he does have a conscience, and, and I think that'll come out in the story here, as we see. I think he has. I think he's got a conscience that's been bothering him ever since he sold his brother into slavery. But, but I'm not sure that it's his conscience that's bothering him. There's something else that's bothering him, and that becomes evident when Hira goes and he can't find the woman, and he comes back and he says, "I can't find her." What does Judah tell her? Tell him. Excuse me. What does Judah tell his friend? Okay, so now we discover what is Judah's issue here, right? Judah's issue is he's afraid of what people are going to think about him. He's afraid that people are going to laugh at him, okay? And so, in not in sending his friend with a goat, instead of him going with the goat, he's able to maintain some degree of anonymity in this search for the for this prostitute, whom it turns out in this passage, it appears uh, that he's under the impression that she's a temple prostitute. She's not an ordinary prostitute, but she's a temple prostitute, which I think uh, incidentally reflects even some, uh, even to a, a bit more degree, the deterioration of, of Judah's spiritual condition, that he has not merely stooped to engage a prostitute but he has engaged a prostitute in association with the pagan religion as he thinks of it, as he anticipates it. So he's not, he's not just been willing to be 
to be involved with a prostitute, but he's been, he's been willing to be involved with a prostitute in association, as he understands it, with the pagan religions of the Canaanites. Okay? So, so, but now, he's, now he doesn't want people to think about him as having frequented a prostitute. Okay? So he sends his friend Hira. And, and so we see in the life of Judah something which unfortunately I think is oftentimes true in our own lives is that he's a lot more concerned with what people think about him than he is with what God thinks about him. And to him it was no issue at all that he should, that he should encounter a prostitute and, and, and consort with a prostitute. That was no issue as far as what God thought of that. That was no big deal to him. But boy, he's sure concerned about what people think about it. And it's really easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? It's real easy for us because people are all around us and we're so concerned about what people think and God's kind of invisible and He's over there and we're kind of used to Him anyway. We're pretty familiar with God and familiarity breeds contempt. And, and so oftentimes, it's very easy for us to live our lives in complete disregard for what God thinks about what we're doing and be all concerned and worried about what people think about what we're doing. And we would be so much better off if we would just reverse those things. Not, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that we should be completely uh, unconcerned about what people think about us. I think it is important what people think about us. But what's more important is what does God think about us. And Judah has lost that perspective. But there's something else that's really that indica- is indicative of Judah's spiritual condition at this point. What is, he, what is he doing when he's sending this goat? Why does he send the goat? Okay, to get his stuff back, yes. But what's he doing? He's paying a debt. He's fulfilling an obligation. But wait a minute. Judah has another obligation over here. What is that? Yes, to give Tamar to his son. He has this obligation to his daughter-in-law. And the paradox of of Judah's life at this point and of Judah's spiritual condition is that he has more integrity with a prostitute than he has with a member of his own house, his daughter-in-law. And that strikes pretty close to home too, doesn't it? That sometimes it's possible for us to show more love, more righteousness, more integrity to those who are outside our families than to our wives and our children and our loved ones and our in-laws. And, it, and when we see it in the life of another, it shows how, how out of order that is. You know, we kind of... Sometimes I think we kind of we, we ignore that in our own lives when we live that way, and we don't think much of it. Of course, our family thinks a lot of it. Our our wives and our children and our in-laws and our other relatives and ones who are close to us they think about it when we treat others more righteously than we treat them. But oftentimes we let that slip by in our own consciousness, and we're not really cognizant of that. We don't give careful attention to that. But when we see it in the life of Judah, it points it out to us, doesn't it? And it reminds us that, that, it is a, that it is a 
is a, it is a denigrated spiritual condition. It's a diminished spiritual condition that causes us to treat others outside of our family better than we treat those in our family. Well, so he sends the goat and they don't find it. And so what does he say? We've already talked about this a bit. What does he say? Forget about it. Forget about it. Now, now what is what he's forgetting about is his seal and his cord and his scepter or his staff. Okay, and we just think, well, those are just items. You know, those are just possessions. But they're not just possessions. They're possessions of significance that represent who Judah is. And they are emblematic of what has really happened when Judah went consorting with a prostitute. Well, someone he thought was a prostitute. Is what we see in Judah's spiritual condition is that he has had complete disregard for his place in the promise of God to Abraham. He's just thrown it to the wind. And the fact that he relinquishes his scepter, if you will, the fact that he relinquishes his scepter to a complete stranger and a prostitute at that, as he perceives her to be, shows the utter disregard he has for his place in the promise of God to Abraham. Why do I say that? Because it's that scepter that Jacob makes such an issue out of in that prophecy in Genesis 49. Now, I don't think it's you know, I don't think it's just incidental that Jacob happens to make that prophecy that way in Genesis chapter 49. That is only a few short years after this event has occurred. And when Jacob says to, when Jacob says to his sons and Judah is sitting there and he says in the presence of all of them and he's saying to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Messiah comes. What is Judah thinking about? He's thinking about how carelessly in the past he has let the scepter pass out of his hand. And he has disregarded the importance and the significance of that staff. And he not only turns it over to the hand of a prostitute and a stranger, but when he can't find her, he just blows it off. Because he's more worried about what people will think then he is concerned about his place in the promise of God to Abraham. And so he just kind of blows it off. But God is unbelievably gracious to Judah. And when that scepter passes for a brief three months out of Judah's hand, it passes into the hand of a woman who jealously guards it and protects it because she is concerned about her place in the promise of God to Abraham, even though she probably doesn't understand it as such. And she is jealously guarding Judah's place when Judah disregards it, Tamar regards it. Now, and we'll deal with the puzzle of Tamar here in a bit because she is a bit of an enigma and we'll get to that. But so now the 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 staff and the seal, they're all in the hands of Tamar. And 
And, and Judah has kind of just blown it off and he goes, well, it's no big deal, even though it really is a very big deal. He's blown it off as it's no big deal. And then he just kind of forgets things and, and, and life just returns to the status quo for about three months. And then what happens? Hey, Rick, before we go there, okay. I want to throw out an idea. This is something I was thinking about when I read through this. The, uh, the idea of going, if, if in fact he was thinking this was a temple prostitute, the idea of going to a temple prostitute in their mind was, well, besides the sexual part of it, was to get closer to God. And I'm thinking here, we haven't seen him trying to have any contact with God since he's been. And I'm wondering if he's gotten such to the point he's thinking, well, I can have some contact with God and go to this, this temple prostitute if this is some kind of, you know, he's gotten so tied up in the, in the culture there. He was so far away from God, now he's, he's making other attempts. He's substituting God. Uh, possibly, but in this but in this regard, that the temple prostitutes were associated with the fertility cults. So the idea is, when you're engaging a temple prostitute in association with the fertility cults, what you're really asking for is you're asking for plenty of kids and plenty of crops. <laughs> okay, and, and this is a guy who's lost two sons. So it is quite possible that that uh, you know that he's thinking that. I, I tend to think he's just more driven by lust than anything. But but that could be a factor. Yes, and and you know in his desire to somehow uh, somehow fill the void that he has in his life because he's turned his back on the true and living God. Yeah. Uh, what was my question? Oh yeah. Okay. That's right. Okay. So he now discovers. That his daughter-in-law has what? Played the harlot. Played the harlot. <laughs> okay, that's how it's represented. It's really, it's really impressive to me how close to her chest uh, Tamar plays this whole thing until until the time is just exactly right to reveal things. Okay, but it is discovered that she plays that. Now this is three months later. Now I want to ask you, what do you think Tamar's been doing with that seal and, rot and cord and staff for the last three months? Hiding them, protecting them, guarding them. Because her whole, her whole thing hangs on those three items that she has in her possession. And, and I just, even though again the text doesn't tell us, you, you, you have to know that she had those things very well protected. She is guarding with everything she has those items that Judah has so lightly dismissed. And so God has placed in the life of Judah a woman who would guard the things that he regards lightly until he comes to value them. And so she has them and now she's discovered to have played the harlot, it appears. And not only has she played the harlot, but she is with child by harlotry. And what is Judah's response? She was more than I Pardon? She was more honorable than I was. Well, before that, though. When he first hears that she's played the harlot, bring her out and burn her. Okay? I mean, it's just, it's just instantaneous. And once again, the, just the, 
you know, Judah just doesn't come across looking very good in this passage, does he? Because here we got have a guy who has gone out and consorted with a prostitute, and now when he when he finds out that supposedly his daughter his daughter in law has played the harlot, he's going to put her to death. Does that remind you of any other story in Scripture? Lest we think that Judah is so despicably low that that others couldn't be equally as hypocritical. What does it remind you of? David. David. When Nathan comes to David, remember, after David has committed sin with Bathsheba, and, and Nathan comes and he concocts this whole story about the little lamb that's been stolen. And, and David is just outraged. <laughs> He's just outraged. And he pronounces this terrible judgment on this guy who has stolen this little lamb from this guy, from his, from his neighbor. Okay? And, and then Nathan says, you are the man. And David's perspective, of course, totally changed. There's actually more than one parallel in this passage with Judah, with the story of David. And it's interesting to think about. But, but, what, we, but what we see Judah doing here is Judah self-righteously is passing judgment on his daughter-in-law whom he believes to have committed harlotry. Okay? And so Judah is just acting in this very pompous, righteous way. Okay? And to the extreme, he says, burn her. Okay? Now, burning, uh, the burning of a person was only reserved for the most heinous of offenses and the most heinous of sexual offenses. Okay? So typically, a prostitute would be stoned, not burned. Okay? But, but burning is reserved for the worst possible case. And Judah, in, in the extremity of his self-righteousness, pronounces the most dramatic judgment on his daughter-in-law. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay? And so we see Judah in this, kind of in this position of, I am the righteous one. I am in the place to judge here. And of course, as the patriarch, he does hold life and death over all within his clan. And so it's in his place. We might think, well, who is he to declare that she should die? But within the patriarchal culture, the patriarch held that position. Uh, he held the position that a judge in our society would hold uh, the authority to do that kind of thing. Okay? So he, so he assumes this position, but he assumes this, this aura of righteousness and indignation at, at Tamar's sin. What he believes to be Tamar's sin. Now, what does Tamar do? She plays her ace in the hole, doesn't she? She brings out the goods. And she says, I, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. She sends this message directly to uh, her father-in-law. And she says, I am with child by the one to whom these things belong. You examine them and see whose seal and cord and staff these are. And this is really the crisis point in the life of Judah. This is where Judah changes from being the scoundrel that we have been seeing all this time up to this point. And at this point, there's a change that begins to take place in the life of Judah that is absolutely astonishing. 
Now, I want you to remember three weeks ago when we last talked about this passage that I stress to you that chapter 38 covers the entire time period from when Joseph was sold into slavery until the, the sons go down to Egypt to buy grain. Okay, it's that whole 22-year period of time. So chapter 38 is covering that whole 22-year period of time. So now as we're approaching the end of chapter 38, we are actually approaching the end of that 22-year period of time. So we are now seeing events in the life of Judah shortly before he joins his brothers and goes down to Egypt to buy grain. And it is at this point, at the end of that 22 years, that God finally begins to make a breakthrough in the life of Judah. And it is so critical that it begin to happen now because in a few short months or a year or two, he's going to be standing before his brother and the question will be, how will he respond when he stands before Joseph? And God is now beginning to work in the life of Judah to prepare him for that for that that watershed event when he stands before his brother and recognizes the brother that he sold into slavery. So, so this is so this is such a critical point in the life of Judah. And this is the turning point. He sees these items. He recognizes his staff and he recognizes the cord and he recognizes the signet ring. And then what does he say? You are more righteous than I. Now, that can actually be translated a couple different ways and commentators debate about what exactly is he saying here. Because it can be translated, as you have seen it here in the New American, she is more righteous than I. But it could also be translated, she is righteous, not I. And so there uh, there is some debate or discussion as to whether or not Judah is saying that Tamar is righteous. And the, the difficulty that some have with that is some of the stuff that, Judah, that Tamar did doesn't look very righteous to us, like sleeping with her father-in-law. Okay. Now, I want to remind you that when we discussed Leverett marriage three weeks ago, I pointed out to you that, that in some cultures, not only was the son, were the, were the, were the brothers responsible but also possibly the father could also be one to fulfill the responsibility of the leveret marriage. So within the culture, it's quite feasible that in Tamar's mind, this was a legitimate fulfillment of the, of the, of the leveret marriage. But we really don't have to resolve the question of was Tamar completely righteous? Okay. I, I have a great deal of admiration for Tamar. I think she is an outstanding woman. And for a Canaanite, I think she is an astonishingly outstanding woman. Okay? So I have much regard for Tamar. But I don't have to reach the conclusion that everything she did was righteous to understand the significance of what happens here in Judah when Judah says, she is more righteous than I, or she is righteous, not I. Whichever it is, what is, out, what is, what is astonishing here is the abrupt change in Judah. Because just before he says this, what a position has he taken? He's the judge. He's the righteous one. He can judge anybody. He's this self-righteous, pompous, 
I'm in charge and I can put people to death at will. And he's, and he's simply confronted with these three items that are the evidence of his sin. And he just melts away. And he recognizes that he's not in a position to judge her. I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of, of what the Lord said when, uh, if in fact this is a, a true story, and there's a question, of course, about the validity of this part of the text, but the story of the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 that's brought to Jesus, and, and we don't know whether that's part of the original text or not, but, but that story there, and then, and then Jesus says to them, you know, who, the one who was without sin cast the first stone, <laughs> okay? And, and I'm reminded of that story because what we have here is we have Judah who recognizes he's not without sin. That he is, in fact, the greater sinner because he has refused to do for this woman what was right to do. And he placed her in the position that she was in that necessitated her doing the things that she did. And so he recognizes that he is the greater sinner. And there is a transformation that takes place here in Judah. And it says, and, and commentators make a great deal out of the statement that he did not lie with her again. And evidence that, that, uh, that he regarded her in such a way that he would not exploit her or take advantage of her. He has now taken a position of humility and recognition of his sin. His response here is not unlike the response of David when Nathan said, you are the man. Now, what is striking to me here is when we read this story, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, uh, that Judah has been backed into a corner and this is the only thing he could say, but that is not the case. Judah could have done anything at this point. Just because he's been presented with the evidence of his sin does not necessitate his confession and his recognition that she's more righteous than, than he. How do I know that? Well, go back to the book of Revelation. See what happens when, when God does all that stuff He's going to do in the tribulation and all those terrible things happen and, and, and falls on the wicked. And what do the wicked do? They blame God and curse God. So, so even when we're confronted with the evidence and even when, when the situation is as damning as the situation seems to be here, it shouldn't be presumed that Judah would respond the way he would. He could have easily blamed Tamar. He could have easily accused her, lied and accused her of stealing them. He could have done any number of things. And so it is to Judah's credit that at this point, he says, I am the greater sinner. And he acknowledges his guilt. Now, this is the, this is the beginning. This is not the end of Judah's transformation because he still has an even greater sin yet that he has to deal with or another great sin he has to deal with which is the sin with Joseph yes one other perspective on this that I see and that is not the circumstances but just the mercy and how really when we come to judgment how really we should die yeah. and we should go to hell yeah. but because God is so merciful yeah yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that's so startling to me about how God has dealt with Judah here. Because what happens in this whole thing? Judah's scepter is restored to him. 
from a Canaanite woman. Judah's scepter is restored to him and it's never to depart from his hand again until Messiah comes. And when I see when I when I see this picture that we've seen of Judah, this spiritual deterioration that takes place over a period of years, and how cold and how callous and how unloving and how proud and how stubborn he becomes over a period of years. And yet through all of that, God is jealously protecting his purposes and his plan and is determined to fulfill his plan and is determined to work in the heart and the life of Judah to bring that plan about. And so we see this remarkable, remarkable mercy of God on the life of Judah. That he doesn't strike him dead like he did his two sons. He could have. But he doesn't strike him dead. But God has determined that He's going to work through Judah and that Judah is going to have a place in this whole redemptive scheme of things as we saw there in Matthew chapter 1 that Judah is going to play a role in that and this great king David is going to come from the loins of Judah and then ultimately, of course, the Messiah. And God has all these wonderful plans for Judah and Judah is doing everything possible to forfeit that. But God in His mercy just keeps working and keeps working. Well, and so then we have the story of the birth of the two sons. And that's interesting in itself that Tamar then has twins. It's just kind of like God just saying, okay, now I'm going to bless you guys. I'm going to bless Tamar. She's been through a lot. She's suffered a lot. I'm going to bless her with twins. But notice He even restores to Judah two sons. mercy of God. It's overwhelming. And so he has these two sons and, and then you have this really strange birth scene, okay, where one of the twins sticks his arm out and they tie a scarlet thread on his arm so they make sure they keep straight which one was born first and then he pulls it back in and out comes the other son. And what does the midwife say? What a breach! What a breakout! And it was through Perez that the Christ was to come, as we saw there in Matthew. It was through Perez. And then we understand when we see all the obstacles that stand in the way of God doing what He wants to do, and not a one of those obstacles will stand. And over and over and over again in the whole story of redemption, what do we see? We see God breaking through. When all the obstacles are there and every barrier is there and everything looks bleak and everything looks like it cannot happen, yet God breaks through. What a breach He has made that He has given us the Christ. Okay, well next week we'll pick up the story of Joseph again in chapter 39.